Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new legal developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you're in the right place. Today, we're going to dive into one of the topics that's been a hot one for Missouri public schools over the past few years, virtual education. With COVID, uh, the delivery of virtual instruction or remote learning has become a much more prominent topic for schools with a great debate over virtual instruction versus in-person instruction. But even prior to COVID, there were a number of legal issues surrounding virtual ed, ed that caused school leaders to examine how virtual instruction would fit into their district's efforts to provide an appropriate public education to their students. We have with us today an attorney who has handled a number of lawsuits and claims by parents against Missouri public schools, uh, my partner, Drew Marriott. Drew is not only a partner here at Ed Council, but also about to begin his service as a school board member in his local school district. So we're excited about that. Drew handles most of our litigation for schools around the state. And the reason I wanted to hear from Drew about virtual ed is that he is involved in, in working through a significant number of disputes surrounding virtual ed and more specifically, one particular facet of virtual instruction, and that is the MOCAP program. Drew, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and happy to talk about this issue. It's something that has been near and dear to my heart for, for uh, since before the pandemic, if we can remember when that was. Through uh, as counsel for schools. Uh, can you give us just a very general overview of the legal structure of virtual ed in Missouri's public schools? Absolutely. So when, when we talk about virtual education, we've got kind of a few different frameworks we're talking about. So when the pandemic hit, we had several districts that implemented their own virtual platforms, so provided their own content, used their own teachers, used Zoom or other um, video platforms to deliver instruction to students. Um, we have other instances where districts have partnered with or entered into agreements. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, 1250 agreements or 1250 agreements, which are agreements with vendors where those vendors provide the content, but the school district can monitor it, has control over it, can see what the students are doing. Um, and then really we've got kind of a third realm, which is MOCAP providers. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about MOCAP providers, I think, as we get further into the, dis the discussion, that's kind of where the disputes and issues have arisen, but um, those MOCAP providers are third-party vendors and they are approved by DESE, and I'm putting air quotes around approved because there's, there's some outliers there, but they're listed on DESE as approved MOCAP providers. And those are instances when, um, when a student enrolls with that vendor and, uh, and then the district, uh, so they're with this third-party vendor, and then the district is paying for that enrollment unless that student's not eligible or doesn't meet other criteria uh, to be allowed to enroll. So when we talk about virtual education in Missouri and really how this has played out through the pandemic, we're thinking about generally those three frameworks. Okay, so it sounds like most of the legal issues are uh, associated with the MOCAP program, or as it's known now as the MOCAP program, although the, currently there's a, some proposed legislation to change the name of the program, and we can get into that a little bit later, but it sounds like that's really where the controversy lies in the MOCAP program itself. That's, that's correct. So, um, you know, one, one thing about a statute is you always want to have a good acronym. 
Um, MOCAP's easy to say, it rolls off the tongue, but uh, I think the new acronym for the new proposed legislation uh, is MCASVIPT. And, um, you know, I don't know quite how to pronounce it, um, but it, it doesn't roll off the tongue as easily. But MOCAP is kind of where we've seen all the issues crop up uh, over the last year, uh, specifically as it relates to public school districts in, in the state of Missouri. Well, I think I will just refer to MOCAP uh, and avoid <laughs> the use of, uh, of, the, of the new nomenclature there. Um, but uh, when it does come to MOCAP, uh, what sorts of issues have clients approached you about? What do you hear from uh, superintendents about uh, the MOCAP program that leads to legal issues? Yeah. And so, I mean, if we think generally to what MOCAP is and how it's set up, um, so this predates COVID and some of the legal issues that we dealt with predated COVID. So before we had school shutdowns, um, we, we had some disputes with, uh, with a firm that, that uh, represented families. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about them, I think, as we get further along. But in 2018, uh, the Missouri legislature passed the Missouri Course Access and Virtual Schools um, Program, so MOCAP. Uh, it was previously called MOVIP, but what this did is allowed students to take these virtual courses um, from a vendor at their district's expense. Now, if you look at that MOCAP language, um, it, it has processes built in it. So it's got eligibility requirements. And so we, we work through with districts, you know, one, is that student eligible to participate in, in a MOCAP program? And so that's kind of our first, first level of review with districts. And we've had some issues come up related to those eligibility requirements, you know, that that relates to have they um, enrolled in a full time full time in the district, have they attended a public school at least one semester immediately prior, or if there's a there's also an exception for medical conditions. So we first look at that, where the issues have really come up um, in, in in how districts are working with these is oftentimes there are students that are not being successful, you know, in person or having difficulty with self-direction or a number of things. And so the other kind of category that we look at is, is whether this is in the student's best educational interest. And so the MOCAP statute provides that uh, a school district will determine if enrolling in virtual education is not in a student's best educational interest. And then the district has to go through that analysis. We've had a number of districts that have, have gone through that analysis and, and determined what best educational uh, interest determination is for, for that individual student, um, but that's resulted in angry letters from a law firm um, that, that, you know, says they represent these families and that the family is the one that is the one that needs to determine what's best for their kid. Um, but, you know, really most of the fights have come down to uh, a district saying on this objective criteria we're looking at as to our student, this is not in the student's best educational interest to be enrolled um, in this MOCAP provider's virtual courses. So, and I think we can have pretty extensive discussion about the best educational interest and some of the issues that are associated with that determination. But I, before we get that, I wanna, to that, I wanna pull back just a second and talk a little bit more about generally the MOCAP program. Um, so if a, if a student uh, for a local school district en enrolls, in the MOCAP program, and they're getting the virtual instruction from a private vendor. Um, the is the local school district still accountable uh, for the academic progress of that kid? Uh, how's that work? Uh, 
That's that's right. I mean, so if we have um, a student that's enrolled in a MOCAP program, so they're eligible, um, you know, the determination was that, okay, this is in their best educational interest or it's not against their best educational interest to enroll in a MOCAP provider. What ends up happening at that point is the school district begins um, paying tuition to that uh, to that vendor. Um, but when it comes to test results, graduation requirements, um, you know, all of the indicators that we're accountable to report to the state as a public school district, that's all on us as a district. So there's no accountability pieces for those vendors. There's no reports coming from those vendors as to how these individual students are doing. That's all getting reported back through the school district itself. And, and then we're responsible for those things. So if, if, if those are issues that come up related to accreditation, for instance, if you get if you get enough of this, um, those are going to be things that the the resident school district, so the public school district that this kid uh, lives in, is going to be responsible for. So, how does the school district make sure that the uh, student is progressing uh, appropriately towards learning goals that they may have? Um, is you know what are the mechanisms that we have and tools that we have to find out from that private vendor how a kid's doing? That's been been one of the, the struggles that we've had, and I um, we've had some vendors that that we've worked through. So there's a statutory requirement under MoCap um, that we are responsible as the public school district, so as the resident district, for monitoring our students' progress and success. And when when you go to some of these vendors and request information related to how these students are progressing, what you are, what you will get is is maybe a monthly. Um, in some instances, for some districts, weekly uh, progress report that lists the percentage, um, the percentage of course completion and the percentage in the class. It doesn't indicate anything else in terms of how they did on a specific assignment, whether they are, um, you know, whether they're progressing towards specific uh, state required learning goals, um, whether they're making progress to end of course assessments that are required by the state whether um, they're making progress towards things that are gonna be on, on state testing. Um, and so with the information that's being provided from some of these vendors, there's absolutely no way to determine how a student's really doing because you don't know, percentage of course completion doesn't tell you what lessons they've taken, what assignments they've done, what tests they've completed and how they've done on each of those individual tasks. What it just tells you is how far along percentage wise are they in the class, which doesn't indicate much. And then what their grade is in the class at that time, which without context doesn't provide a district, you know, enough to know how they're really doing towards learning. And so one of the things that um, that that has been a subject of litigation is, well, if we have a statutory duty as a school district to monitor student progress and success, does that mean that we can require certain things of that student, even though they're participating in, in this virtual course from a vendor? And so can that be seat time? Can we require that they come to school for a certain amount of time to make sure that we're understanding um, what they're doing, how they're progressing? Um, can that be requiring benchmark assessments or assessments that we would require all of our other students to do uh, to see where they're progressing and how they're doing? Um, and that's been a little bit of a fight. The difficulty I think is that when we talk about 1250 setups or where we're working with a vendor or our own virtual setups for a school district where the district is providing the content, we can see everything in real time. 
right? We've got login to a, a portal or platform that we can see, all right, this student did, did not do great on their US Constitution, you know, Article One section. And if they didn't do great on that, then we know how to intervene and we know how to step in and do those things. But with some of these vendors, um, we're not getting access to those things. So we don't know we don't know where the hangups are. We don't know where the interventions need to, need to be uh, made. And, and that presents real difficulty in, in determining whether that kid's doing a good, you know, doing well in school or not. Drew, that was great insight into what happens once a kid is enrolled. I want to take a step back for a second and talk about eligibility and the best educational interest determination you were talking about. So as I understand it, uh, a student uh, wants to enroll in a particular uh, MOCAP program. Um, it is really the uh, obligation and the authority of the local school district to make the determination as to whether or not that particular program is in the best educational interest of a, of a student, correct? That's correct. Um, so how does that work? Yeah. So, and I'm glad you asked that because we've had, you know, this has been an issue um, over the last year. MoCap was was somewhat new, and I think in some ways, um, Desi was kind of feeling its way through and how it was going to process appeals, um, you know, of MoCap determinations from school districts. But those appeals and how those have been processed by Desi have given us some insights into how they're going to look at these issues. And so, when we talk about best educational interest. Uh, the most important thing is, is that we're making individualized determinations as to the student. And so, you know, one of the, the criticisms that, that we've heard from some of the proponents of, of these MOCAP vendors is that districts are just denying, um, denying enrollment because they have their own virtual providers or preferred providers. I think as people kind of dug in and looked at that, that was not really happening as much um, as some people were saying. but it is an important reminder that we're not we're not denying uh, best educational interest is not a determination of we have another program or generally we have better programs or we have a preferred vendor. What it is is we're going to look um, individually at each student who applies. So that can be student attendance. It can be their grade point average, their grades, how they're doing in the specific classes uh, they may be enrolling in um, through a MoCap provider. Uh, self-motivation. So, I mean, sometimes that's meeting with teachers that have had the student to see, hey, is this a, is this a student that will succeed with self-direction and working on these things virtually on their own? Um, you know, whether a virtual course provides enough rigor for that student compared to uh, district courses on the same subject. And, and one thing that we didn't have a year ago that we have now um, in a lot of instances is we, we kind of have a baseline, right? Because there are a lot of students that have taken virtual courses now and we can say, well, their, their student engagement, their grades, their attendance, you know, their participation generally, we can look at those things. And if we can say those, that wasn't a good fit for that student and virtual education was not something that worked for them and they were not successful at it and they weren't progressing, then we've got that as a basis to now say, virtual education may not be um, in, the, in the best educational interest of this student. So really we're looking at all of those individualized components of each student and going through and determining that as the administrative team as we go through and make that best educational interest determination. 
I want to shift uh, with you, uh, if I may, to something else that is uh, something you mentioned earlier, and that is the proposed legislation. And, and we have right now uh, some proposed legislation to revamp the, the MOCAP program, right? Yep. What's the... Uh, what uh, what are the highlights there that uh, people should be aware of? Well, and and you know, I think I'm going to focus kind of specifically on two Senate bills, and they're they're very similar. But I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces, and this is kind of shift, shifting sand right now. Um, but the legislature, you know, Senate Bill 95, Senate Bill 55, um, you know, really what they're trying to do is is you know, when we talk about best educational interest as a school district, we're we're thinking about what's in the best interest of these students based on objective criteria that we've seen as educators working with these students in the district. And, and how that's been refashioned, I think, um, by people who are proponents uh, for these virtual education vendors is that, that that means we're some kind of gatekeeper that we're trying to block the way to these students enrolling in those programs. And so to rebut that, I mean, what, what some of this proposed legislation does is it says that virtual school programs will become attendance centers. And so full-time enrolled students would no longer be included in the resident district's attendance. Well, that, that means that we're not necessarily responsible for them because they're not our resident, our resident students anymore. And, um, but, you know, what, what it also means is that, um, is that there's no there's no oversight to make sure these kids are succeeding and where that comes into play so the best educational interest determination is now a determination that individual parents get to make um, for their students so there's there's no oversight from a school district to say well we know this student won't be successful in virtual education because we have a year of virtual education to show that that was a, a difficult ride and not good for the kid um, but now the district has no say in that process whatsoever the one thing that's kind of interesting in these in, in the proposed legislation, and, and this has been, um, you know, this has been kind of a criticism, I think, in the past, sometimes of charter schools, but it gives virtual schools uh, the ability to remove students that are attending um, if the provider believes that the course isn't in the student's best educational interest um, and allows them to remove students um, that are not that are not succeeding. And so the difficulty becomes Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you just to be clear, you indicated that the vendor the the is the one that makes that determination at this point. Correct. So it's the vendor, not the school district that can. So, you know, as the, the resident school district or the public school districts, you're now removed from the process. You have no oversight requirements there in some of the proposed legislation there. There is the, the fact that Desi will pay more off the top than the amount of money that these vendors are allowed to um, charge school districts now. But we have no, no decision or ability to say this is not in the best educational interest of a student, but the vendors can. And so with the vendors having this control and saying, okay, this is not in the best educational interest of a student, or this student is not making progress or having success in this virtual program, they can then remove those students from those, those MOCAP programs. And what that means is those students then end up back at their resident district. Um, but we've had no insight, oversight, ability to monitor that student progress and success for the duration of time that that student was with the vendor. Can you, um, I know you've been involved in some litigation and uh, associated with the MOCAP program. 
and you've had to defend some uh, public school districts on claims that were made by parents. Can you give our listeners some idea of what that is about? What's maybe some examples of the types of claims and arguments that get made? So absolutely. We've had, you know, we've had some lawsuits and threatened lawsuits and some issues that we've worked through. Um, The first one that I'm going to talk through related to uh, a special education student. And, And I think that in some ways, the, the special education scenario is kind of analogous to the, the broader issue that we have here. So when we talk about best educational interest analysis, we're talking about teachers and administrators who are working with individual students, looking at objective criteria to decide whether a student will be successful in, in arguably a new placement, right? Being put into a, a virtual program where there may be self-monitoring, working from home, and where we potentially as a school district aren't seeing them at all. Um, The first case we had was a case that uh, what ended up happening is is the family requested to be enrolled in a MOCAP provider. They had also at the same time um, had filled out a homeschooling form and unenrolled from the school. And so the the denial, um, they went through this process, the district said, one, there's no eligibility because, um, because you've unenrolled from school. And so you don't meet that eligibility criteria. But two, as a special education student, this is, this is not in the best educational interest of the student and for a number of reasons. And so that was denied. Um, the family there appealed that uh, to DESE and DESE affirmed uh, that denial. So the administration went through the process where those administrators and teachers met, made those determinations specific to that student administration then made that decision. So that was communicated to the family. The family then appealed that to the board of education and then the board of education voted to, to affirm that decision under the statute. The parent can then appeal to DESE and DESE can then go and make a determination looking at the information provided there. DESE agreed with the school district that it was not in the best educational interest of the student. Prior to all of that, the family had enrolled the student in this MOCAP provider already, and the student had been participating um, with the MOCAP provider for months. And so after after Desi's denial, uh, a law firm out of St. Louis that represents a number of these families filed a lawsuit um, in Cole County, Missouri, sued the school district, um, sued Grandview R2, which is the the sponsor district for for the specific provider, and sued Desi as well. Um, we ended up removing that case to federal court uh, under the, the, the argument that really these are IDEA issues. So we're really talking about the interpretation of federal law. This is an issue that needs to be in federal court. This is really about placement determinations and under IDEA. And when we look at IEPs and how we're handling and providing uh, FAPE for students, that this is, this is a determination that needs to be analyzed under federal law before we look at the MOCAP statute. And there what ended up happening is the judge in the federal court um, agreed uh, with our removal of federal court and said, yes, these are federal issues that need to be interpreted under IDEA and that it's appropriate to be in federal court and that you know change in placement is, is actually something that's required and the, termina- the determination of that under IDEA is required for these special education students. So shortly after that decision was made, um, the, the family ended up dismissing the lawsuit. I think the difficulty in that position, and so when we talk about virtual education for, for um, special education students, 
is we do, we need to have a change in placement. But the problem is, is these vendors aren't providing um, and we're still responsible for all of the services. So we're responsible for those minutes that those students are supposed to be getting, even if they're with this virtual vendor. And, and oftentimes these virtual vendors aren't set up to provide any of these special education services. That's a, that's a responsibility that falls on the district. So in this instance with this, with this, um, this student, unfortunately what happened is she was enrolled in, uh, in, a, in a MOCAP provider for a year over objections from the district, over DESE's affirmation of the district's objections, and um, ultimately returns back to the district after getting failing grades and all of her, all of the classes, and is now back at the district, unfortunately, having missed out on um, a year of meaningful education. And we've had other, other instances of litigation that we've handled. We had a case that we, um, Matt Wilson, uh, one of our partners, and I tried in October, and that really related to a student that was was enrolled in a MOCAP program. Um, their DESE disagreed with the district's uh, determination. And so the DESE came back mid, mid school year. So at semester and said that this student needs to be enrolled in the MOCAP program and the district did. There, there were some issues there at that time. Uh, the district did not uh, was not contacted to provide any documents as part of the appeal. So all of those appeal documents came from um, came from the family and not all of the documents that were part of that appeal were provided. Um, but regardless, the district said, okay, you're enrolled in, in the MOCAP program. We're going to pay uh, those invoices and, and did, but said, here are some requirements to make sure we can monitor student progress and success while you're there. So we can make sure you're succeeding and progressing as a student and that you're going to be uh, meeting all the requirements you need um, to graduate and, and meet other requirements to um, uh, you know, to pass your grade. And so that resulted in another lawsuit. And um, we took that to trial last October. And, and, and the court there came back and said, well, yeah, there is a statutory mandate that public school districts monitor their students' progress and success. There is, there's also, the, the statute says that they're still our student. So the resident district, this is still our student, even though they're participating through a vendor. And so there the court said, yeah, you can require seat time. So in this instance, the school district had required five hours of seat time a week to make sure that the student was progressing, required benchmark assessments, required end of course assessments, and also state assessments. Um, and the court came in and said, who is it for us as a court to insert our judgment um, when, when this is the judgment of a school district and the statute says these are our requirements um, that a school district has to do. And so that's one of the other things that's being attacked in some of the proposed legislation. And I think it's specifically geared towards the, the opinion from the judge in that case, but is, is to basically say that there can be no seat time requirements because we're taking all the monitoring requirements away. Um, I think the difficulty there is that there's not gonna be the level of accountability for these vendors if that oversight's taken away, there's not going to be a way to monitor and, and see how these students are doing. And unfortunately, um, these students, you know, there, there, there will be students that fall through the cracks. Thank you for that, Drew, and appreciate your insights into, you know, some of the issues that are surrounding the MOCAP program and virtual ed in Missouri in general. 
And we also appreciate you, the listeners, for taking the time today. And we hope you'll follow and share our Ed Council podcast on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics with practical insights on how to manage the legal risk and compliance issues associated with school law. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website, just Google Ed Council, that's E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together today, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.